Hi guys, um, good morning, afternoon, night, evening, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. So for today's um, guest podcast, or like episode, um, I'm speaking with Roxanne Donovan, and she teaches at KSU, and I really enjoyed uh, this week's episode. I know I say that for like everyone, but like I truly did, and I got to learn so much about like how like the pressure put on us from immigrant parents affects us and then how our peers and acquaintances also affect us too because I have personal experiences with that and I'm sure a few of you guys have too or at least seen people like your friends or acquaintances experience it and it is not fun if you know like yeah I talk about more in episodes so you'll hear about it yeah I hope you guys enjoy this podcast and I'll see you guys at the end Can you start by introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Roxanne Donovan. I am a professor of psychological sciences and interdisciplinary studies at Kennesaw State University. And I'm also the owner and CEO of Well Academic, which is a professional development organization that helps exhausted faculty find their way back to wellness and centeredness and rootedness. Wow, I don't know. That's so cool. Okay, so the first question is like, what got you into psychology and to like be a professor? Well, it was a very windy road, Sarah, to be perfectly honest with you. I started out as a business major and I spent the first years of my professional life working in corporate America. And I am sure corporate America is amazing for some people, but it was a nightmare for me. Every time I got up to go to work, I felt like I was putting on a facade and that it wasn't me. And I had, when I was majoring in business, um, my parents and I are immigrants. Our family moved to New York from Guyana when I was eight years old. And so like many immigrant parents, my my parents were very interested in me having a secure life. And I, in college, wanted to major in psychology. It was my love. It was my passion. But they were like, nope, you got to have a practical major. <laughs> you can't do psychology. I know now as a professor of psychology that psychology is a practical major and you don't need to go to graduate school to um to use the major in very productive ways but obviously i didn't know that then so i majored in business even though i really wanted to be a psychologist so i'm out in the business world i feel like it is a complete misfit i end up being transferred from new york city where i was working uh, to new jersey and this was way before Google Maps or anything like that. And I found an apartment and warning, I would not recommend anyone do this. Well, now there's Google Maps and all these kinds of things. Uh, but the way I found the apartment was I went to the place where I would be working. I got on the expressway I went and went like one exit north, got off, saw an apartment complex. And I was like, OK, I guess that's it. <laughs> I went to the management office and I got the apartment. I only had like a week to move. So it was all quite hurried. Anyway, so I'm at this apartment. I don't even really know where I am in New Jersey. And I think, and it turns out 
when I ask someone, like, where is Rutgers vis-a-vis where I'm living right now? And it turned out it was like a mile and a half down the road. (laughs) I really didn't have any idea. And so I thought it was a sign from the universe. And I signed up for my first psych class, not thinking anything, just thinking I love psychology. I'm just going to take a class. So I took statistics because it's one of the harder classes in psychology. And I figured if I don't do well in statistics, then maybe psych's not meant for me. But I love the class. And so I took another class. I think it was abnormal. And then I took another class and another class and another class. And before you know it, I had enough for a second degree. And I had an amazing mentor at Rutgers. And all the time, I'm working like 60 hours a week at AT AT&T. And I had this amazing advisor at Rutgers. I was doing research with him. And he said, you know, Roxanne, you ought to really think about applying to get your PhD. And I thought, no way will I get into a clinical psych program. It's so competitive. I'm this business person. But he convinced me to apply. So by a variety of happenstance, (laughs) like I happened to moved to a place right by workers. I happened to take classes in the right categories that got me my second degree, undergraduate degree in psychology. And I just happened to have a mentor who thought that I would make a good clinical psychologist, which was my secret dream. So when he said it out loud, I was like, me, I can be a psychologist. (laughs) And I applied thinking there's no way I would get in. And shockingly, I did get into some programs, and one of them was at the University of Connecticut in stores. And the person that I would end up working with, who would be my mentor, was just so amazing, Dr. Michelle Williams. And I chose University of Connecticut because of her. And I have to say, it was the best decision I've ever made. Being in academe has not always been easy, but even my worst day in academe is still better than my best day in business. It has been the perfect fit for me. So thank you for asking. It makes me feel quite quite deep gratitude, right? I feel um, deeply grateful to be an academic and have the opportunity to teach amazing students every semester. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> um, okay, so what's your take on how psychology is related to education? I think the two are quite intertwined, actually. Um, I think I'm a better educator because I'm a psychologist. I also have a lot of friends who teach in education programs. And they use quite a bit of psychological principles and psychological theories. Um, They learn a lot about psychology in their teaching. In fact, um, one of my besties is a middle grades education uh, faculty member. So she she teaches in education. Um, She used to be a teacher, um, Black Studies and English. I know it's English, but I also think it's it, it had something to do with Black Studies. And she and I are writing a book on social justice parenting together. And we've written um, at least one chapter together 
because the education side of thinking about the world and life and the psychology side of thinking about the world and life, just they're so complementary that I learn a ridiculous amount about students and about working with students from her. And I hope she also benefits from my, my psychological perspective. And our book doesn't necessarily have to do with it. It is about teaching, but it's about teaching one's children. Uh, it's about social justice parenting. Okay, so um, what do you think is the number one problem for teachers with students and like trying to get their attention and retain it for a long period of time? I think our attention span study shows about three minutes. I know some people say it's 30 seconds, like a goldfish, but it's a it's about three minutes that we can focus. And that's an adult brain, much less a child's brain where the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed. And that's where your attention and impulse control development happens. So I think it's hard to get and keep anyone's attention, but particularly the way the school system is structured where students have to sit quietly for multiple hours in the day and now recess is being pulled back because teachers are required to teach to state tests and things like that. It's really taking away flexibility. It's taking away students' ability to be more physically active, which helps. So I think it's a challenge all around. Did you say ask what the biggest challenge is? Mm -hmm. I think it's physiological. Kids' brains um, <laughs> aren't fully developed to be able to attend for a long period of time. I think it's structural in the way that the school day is set up. And I also think we just require an awful lot from teachers um, without commensurate resources, at least in most schools, the resources don't match the expectations, which when that gap is wide, it's just a recipe for burnout. And K through 12 teaching research shows is one of the most stressful professions out there. Okay, so you mentioned the school schedule. Would there be anything you changed to make it better for children and teachers? I think kids need to be a lot more active during the school day. Research suggests that, you know, movement, even standing up, helps with attention and helps with focus. And we just can't attend for long periods of time without breaks. So if you, if you really want to learn, you know, do hyper-focused learning for short burst and then take a break, preferably a break where you're active and outside and then come back and you're able to attend longer and learn better in such an environment. And I just don't think the school day, because of these external um, stressors on what happens in the classroom and what teachers have to do, um, students just don't get that. So the school day just doesn't seem to be aligned with what research says is best for learning and best for um, maintaining attention. So I'd put lots of breaks, lots of active breaks. I'd bring recess back, make it longer and make it more. I mean, people are like, well, how do you teach? But 
is it what you teach or what students learn? Like for me, it's obviously important what you teach, but if students aren't learning because they can't attend for that long period of time, it's not helpful. Um, in high school, I'd start the school day later. I realized there's all kinds of complications when the school day ends later, but just high school when students start puberty and later in adolescence, um, the their temporal clock shifts. <laughs> so they just, um, they want to go to sleep later. They're, they're more alert in the evening, so it's harder to go to sleep. And so having the day start later matches their natural clock a bit more. So again, I would follow the research, but sometimes you can't do that because it's impractical. Like how do you play sports um, if the school day ends? How do you practice? if the school day ends at four or five o'clock and then you're getting home at nine o'clock. So I realized that, you know, my vision doesn't necessarily map with practicality. It's not as pragmatic as it could be. Yeah. Um, ooh, what if you put extracurriculars and sports in the morning? Or you have it included in the school day, kind of like gym. You know, gym gets PE almost doesn't exist in high school, but what if um, it was a block during the day? Again, giving the physical exercise that students require or the movement that students require, or even just shifting thinking from one part of the brain to maybe um, doing drama because you're in the school play and having that be a block in, uh, during school versus after school. Okay. So do you think you'd teach differently if you didn't have a degree or background in psychology? Oh, for sure. It, well, you know, it's funny. I teach in psychology as a clinical psychologist. So um, I teach similarly to other clinical psychologists, but I use a lot of the skills that I learned both in my training and because my mindset is very, I'm very psychologically minded. I'm holistically minded. So I think I, I spend a lot of time, particularly in these COVID times, I spend a lot of time thinking about students' wellness and well-being. I think a lot about how do I create assignments that spark their interest um, but also don't overtax them in this moment. Um, I think a lot about my students in a holistic sense. So I do whole person learning and I try to be a whole person teacher, which means that I'm trying to pace myself uh, well. I'm trying to think about the arc of the semester. When are students most stressed? When might I be more most stressed? And then setting up the schedule uh, the syllabus based on these things so i don't know if i would do that if i weren't a psychologist so do you think everyone should at least take classes in psychology if they're going to be in the education field to help when they're teaching and being able to know their students better Ooh, that's a hard question I'm, it's hard for a variety of reasons. First, as an, and, and I'm assuming you're saying undergraduate classes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, should take undergrad. 
as an undergraduate psychology major, you don't learn, you don't do deep learning. It's a, the degree is about breath, not depth. So you don't learn how to do um, clinical work at the undergraduate level. You do learn a lot about how do you motivate behavior, you know, you learn about differences and unconscious bias and depending on the program, obviously, and you learn about abnormal psychology and things like that. But again, it's, it's not going super deep. You get that level of deep training at the graduate level, which is why my parents, as much as they are right about 90% of the thing, the 10% that they were incorrect about was that I needed a graduate degree in order to use my psychology if I did major in psychology to use my psychology undergrad. Um, it, as an undergrad, it could be a liberal arts degree, right? As any other liberal arts degree, or you could use it as a preparation uh, degree for graduate school. I didn't know that and neither did my parents. So it's a trick question because mm, I think it's, it would be helpful, but I don't know about required. Um, so how do you think your degree in psychology gives you a dis different perspective on people and on yourself? Hmm. So I'm going to say my graduate degree, so my PhD in psychology, because my, my research area is in diversity and social justice, looking at how things like racism and sexism, experiences of racism and sexism influences um, mental health and well-being. So I think it really gives me a perspective on how sociostructural variables can impact people's lives. You know, in it's it's quite, how do I put it? It's quite seductive to think that we are 100% responsible for everything that happens in our lives. And I think psychology falls into that trap sometimes in therapy. Like if you change, everything will change. But I think my training has shown me, you know, that there are multiple levels of influence on people's lives. Some of them are individual, some of them are interpersonal, some of them are institutional, and some of them are structural. That doesn't mean people don't have agency, right? It's just there are limits to your agency. And I guess part of what I try to do in the, in the clinical work that I do, and I don't uh, do therapy, but I do coaching of faculty is to help, you know, elbow out some space between those factors that aren't individual, just so you can, um, you can have more agency, you can eke out a little bit more agency just by understanding what these other forces are. So that perspective, I don't think I would have gotten anywhere close to if it weren't for my training. So you mentioned you're writing a book with your friend on parenting. And do you think after learning psychology, it gave you a new perspective on how you're supposed to raise your child or how you see other people's children? 
um, you're seeing, we're on Zoom, so you saw me <laughs> kind of laugh. You know, it, it's so different knowing the theories versus actually parenting. It's like parenting's hard. <laughs> I don't know if I quite understood how hard before I had my own children. But I think there are some values and principles that guide me that are very psychologically minded, that guide me in my parenting. Um, Self-compassion when I'm not doing, I'm not being the ideal parent that I want to be. I think self-compassion has really, really helped me be resilient around that versus falling into the trap of I'm horrible, I'm horrible, I'm horrible, which then makes it very hard to parent with intention. I am very connected with using values to guide you in your parenting, which is a part of um, acceptance and commitment therapy and also some of the theories that I, I'm very connected to in psychology. And so helping my kids see that they have, they have the ability to do valued action like values are not just something that you think about. Values are something that you enact um, on a daily basis and trying to model that for them and also trying to model self-compassion um, so that they can, it's it's tough out there. <laughs> they're teens, uh, they're young teens now. And it's really hard to be a teenager. And I think being psychologically minded, I can try and I'm not successful because I know the important thing for me to do when they're in struggle is to be present for them. Like all the research says, like, don't, don't try to solve the problem. (laughs) Obviously help them solve the problem, Um, help them find their own path forward, but being present and listening and being empathic. And that's how I try to parent. I'm not successful uh, a lot of the time, but I think I have some wins. Um, And when I'm not successful, I, I do it. I try to do it 1% better next time. Do you ever like self-diagnose children when you see their certain actions? You know, I don't know if I, if, if I would do that, if I were to do that, if I didn't have a psych degree, I think I would have been doing that (laughs) even if I stayed in business, but I try, but having, uh, the training, being a clinical psychologist, I work really hard actually not to uh, diagnose people that are not my clients because I realize that, you know, whatever I'm seeing is just a snippet of who they are. People are multidimensional beings and just because I'm watching them in a parking lot or it may not be their best moment and it would be actually against the ethical code (laughs) as a psychologist to diagnose people that I I do not know and I have not interacted uh, with in the capacity as uh, as their therapist, as a psychologist. Yeah, I asked that because I have a friend whose mom, uh, she also has a PhD in psychology and she has her own business. And she mostly works with children for like autism and ADHD. And he'll say like, that she like subconsciously like diagnoses them like when she sees their certain action so that just came up to mind oh well i mean i may see something that's quite indicative of one of 
the diagnostic and statistical manual things that are one of the issues. I don't want to say disorders. I don't like that term. And I would be like, oh, wow, that, that there might be something going on there. But I'm, I, oh, I try so, so hard to be tentative and to really watch that right? Watch my internal judgment of other people, um, placing them in some sort of diagnostic box, um, because people can get really trapped in those boxes, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm not, if I'm seeing something, I'm sure other people are seeing it too. And then it impacts how they interact with said person. Yeah, it's just, it's, it can be super complicated. So it doesn't mean that my mind doesn't go there, but then I try to it's not like I try to bury it, but then I try to, oh, I'm doing that again. Let me, let me work on, let me work on understanding A, that I don't know it all and B, that what I'm seeing may not be accurate, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like my parents are also immigrants and they're from China. So they have that uh, way of thinking that like, oh, education is the most important because back then that's how like you move social classes. And they always tell me, oh, you have to get A's so that you have more opportunities, which is true. But they don't really worry about me because I always get A's. So how do you think that, like, when parents put certain expectations on their children, with, like, especially education, how that affects them mentally at school? I, I think at the extreme levels, right? I think it's perfectly typical for parents to want the best for their children. I think at the extreme levels when there is shame or anger, when students don't show up exactly, or children don't show up exactly the way uh, the parent wants them to. And I'm not talking about destructive behavior or dangerous behavior. I'm talking in what you're talking about, maybe not getting the grades that the parent hopes. And it's not only that the parent's like, oh, I, I, I wish you would have tried. Let's talk about how you could do things differently. But like, I can't believe this is how you do it, you know? And then there's the shame cycle. That can, at the extreme levels, it can result in a couple of things. The things that I see um, most typically is the student might disengage, right? from school, the child might disengage from school and why bother, right? Regardless of their acumen, regardless of their preparation, they may not, they just may not try because they don't want to fail or they think preemptively fail or it's their way of asserting their independence, right? I'll show you. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything that you want me to do. And on the other extreme is perfectionism slash imposter syndrome. Um, so just perfectionism, working, 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 a 99 is not good enough. It has to be 100. And then there's a spread effect, right? So it can go from grades to presentation of self to blah, blah, blah. So there's that. Um, and then the imposter syndrome is like, I really, they don't know but I really suck. And the next test is going to show when I fail, all these people think I'm amazing, but I'm really not. <laughs> and so anytime there is the opportunity to 
put your work forward, it's a huge amount of anxiety. Um, a, because there's the expectation that you have to do well. And then B, because there might be this sense that you're, you're just never good enough, right? You can never measure up. And all of those things, um, I think, create complicated relationships for the children in, when it comes to learning and school. Because all kids are going to encounter even the most brilliant of kids who work really hard to um, do well. They're going to encounter the class, the professor, the combination of class and professor in which they may not, they just may not get it, right? Um, it, it may require more effort than they're able to give either because of other classes or because of work or because, you know, of stuff going on in the home. And, and then if, when they don't do well and grades are tied to their sense of self, you can imagine, right? Versus grades are what they are, you know, an assessment of where you are in a given moment, right? If you get the B, what does that mean? You get the C, oh my God, what does that mean for who I am? So yeah, it can be super hard, right? Because I, I'm about to say something that doesn't sound like a professor would say, but you know, grades are what they are, but they're not who you are, right? A C student is not a worse human being than an A student. Um, they're both amazing and worthy, not because of what they produce, but because they exist. Um, and so letting people know that, and if they seek to strive, wonderful, strive to be a better student, strive to be an amazing student. But if you don't hit it every single time, it does not mean you aren't worthy. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the more pressure um, parents put on students and uh, on their children to be amazing students and accept nothing less than perfection, then you could see how that could ramp up the perfectionism, ramp up the internalization that I'm only good if I'm perfect, which no, no human is, right? Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that makes us human is that we are messy and imperfect beings. Um, and so when that messy <laughs> imperfection comes out, and it will, um, you don't want to have to feel then that you are worthless. Yeah. yeah. So like the other side of that situation is like, um, there's like this notion that like Asians are like always get A's and blah, blah. And then like for me personally, when I was in middle school, like my worst class that I got grades in that weren't A's was math. Like I would always get B plus, but that doesn't happen in high school anymore. So I don't know what happened. But whenever I would get a lower grade than my friends, they would always compare me like, oh my gosh, I got a higher score than Sarah. That would make me feel so bad. And I was like, why do you even say that? And it made me feel even worse about myself because I was already so upset that I already did bad. So I was like, oh, why would you even, like you should think about what you say before you say it. So there's actually a name for that a stereotype is called the model minority and you nailed it. I, you know, the thing about stereotypes is it sets an expectation that other people can 
put on you that does not belong. You're not allowed to be your full human self, right? The breadth of our humanity is so much more than any single stereotype can capture. And so when people have expectations for you that you don't live up to that are aligned with a stereotype, God, that just feels awful. It's like, I am more like, I am Sarah. <laughs> yes, I'm of Asian descent. And there is so much more to me. And I get to do um, well in a class, but that's not an A. And when you compare me, that means I feel different. Right. And, you know, in our culture, different isn't necessarily celebrated as diversity different is perceived as deficit in some way right not in all aspects of our society but in general and we don't want to feel different um especially in adolescence oh my gosh (laughs) different is like not good (laughs) because your friends are your barometer right Mm -hmm. when you're an adolescent yeah okay so like uh Another notion is like, oh, colored people, you should stay away from them because they're not good or like they don't behave well or like aren't well mannered. How does that also affect children in like an education environment when they're friends or just like um, the people surround them have like bad expectations of them? You know, one thing that is so much a part of who we are as humans is the need to belong, right? Mm -hmm. Belonging, even for people who say it doesn't matter, right? We are, we are like social creatures. And when we are ostracized or rejected, it is akin to physical pain. In fact, the same parts of the brain light up that light up when we're physically injured. And so when we're around people who reject us, even even subtly so, it is painful. And no one, like I said before, no one wants to feel different. No one wants to feel rejected. And I mean, if we if we just paused before we acted just a little bit, if we taught more about in in schools and and in other places we taught empathy we taught self-compassion we taught collaboration over competitiveness i think it would go a long way to helping people feel connected and when you feel connected and supported you're actually you actually do better (laughs) right um if you feel isolated and alone Who does their best in that environment? But when you feel accepted, seen, heard, valued, like all of those things can can really help you strive. In fact, there's research on expectation. um, And students rise and fall, children, your own children as parents rise and fall to your expectations of them. Um, And so if you expect that someone is going to do well and they're going to be amazing in the world and not like toxic optimism. <laughs> so they come and they say, oh my God, this horrible thing happened. You're like, everything will be fine. It's so wonderful. Look at the sunshine. Like not that, but like really seeing people, being with them, having the best of intentions for them 
um, believing that they are capable even when they're in struggle, right? Like people making them feel warm. Like the you asked me about parenting before and like all of the ways that I mess up as a parent and trust me, Sarah, they are many. What I want for my kids is to always know that they, they, that home, that, that their mom and their dad will always be a soft place to land. Like no matter how turbulent <laughs> it gets that we will always be a soft place to land. However many times that things go wrong for them, if they quote unquote mess up, right? That we will be here like supporting them through it all. And that's belonging. And so this creating a sense of belonging for students, creating a sense of belonging for one's children, creating a sense of belonging for the people around you, right? Um, I think it goes a long way to helping people feel secure and accepted and whole. We have a lot of power that way. Mm -hmm. So another thing is like, even though we've come a long way, like people are still sexist and like, oh, women can't do this and that, like, especially like, uh, engineering majors so like oh there's always only one woman in like a only man's class like how do you think women feel when they feel like they have to live up to this expectation of like oh they actually can do things and that they are smart but like everyone around them thinks that they can't yeah um Claude Steele did a lot of research on something called stereotype threat um and so if you belong to a group, and so you're talking about women in which a stereotype is, for example, they're not good at math, and you cue um, his research, look up his research, it's quite brilliant, and a lot of other people have uh, taken on the, the topic of stereotype threat. If you cue um, girls before a math test and you cue up the stereotype just even by showing a commercial of a woman in a traditional role those girls will underperform on that math test compared to what they would if they had not seen the commercial and so if you think about all of the ways and by the way i think they they did the same thing with athletes white white and athletes of color, they, um, it's not Claude Steele, but maybe it was Claude Steele, I don't know, um, queued up the jock stereotype and the athletes underperformed. So yeah, so there's multiple ways that you can queue up the stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. And so once you have the stereotype in your head and it's, well, the culture has a stereotype, but once that stereotype is triggered in your head, and can you imagine it could be triggered internally? Like you don't need to see, <laughs> you don't need to see um, a commercial of a woman in a, you're about to take a test. You're the lonely only, the only girl in a class full of boys, the only woman in a class full of men. And you can queue up cognitively oh my God, all these dudes are so much smarter than me or I've got to do well. And so you've triggered then the stereotype threat. And there are multiple ways that you can um, resist stereotype threat, but just think about how the, what I'm trying to say is all of these external things can impact one's performance. And I find that shocking. <laughs> so being the only in a historically um, 
marginalized or minoritized space can make it harder. So there's these pressures. Wow, talk about going back to imposter phenomenon, imposter syndrome, as it's um, talked about in in popular culture. Yes, then you can feel like an imposter because you can't you can't mess up. You have to be perfect because if you do, then you not only mess up as Sarah, right? You mess up for all the women who are going to come before, who are going to come after you. And you've messed up all the women who came before you to pave the way. It's just a lot of pressure because you don't only represent yourself, you represent your group, which is what it means to be a historically marginalized individual in a in, in a space in which you are the only or one of a few. So you mentioned in the beginning how you have your own business. So how do you help teachers after they're like really stressed and like? So there's the practical things, right? So and I, I work with um, higher ed faculty. So um, different than K, similar, similar, like the Venn diagrams overlap, but there's considerable difference. So there's practical um, ways that you can help faculty uh, reduce overwork and overload, you know, organization, um, what are you saying yes to, um, how do you prevent things from getting on uh, your, <laughs> your schedule, what, um, what are you doing to plan your day out, you know, because planning helps you achieve more. The research says that we know that, but planning isn't going to save you, right? If um, there's too much coming in, all the organization in the world isn't going to matter. Like my daughter, um, she has a lot of things in her room. Like it's, she's got books. She's a voracious reader, but she never gets she never donates the books. She keeps them because they're like her children. And so she's just like, I need just better bookshelves. And I need, I'm like, there's just too much. <laughs> there comes a point where organization is not the problem. It's what's, it's, you've got too much. You've got to prune. So there's that part. But then there's also like the psychological part, the mindset part, the, the structural part. So the stereotype part, the if you're the only in a department, what's going on for you around perfectionism that is is individual, but it's also intersectional with kind of the cultural climate that that we're in. And how do you how do you show up in authentic ways um, and resist the the pull, right? The current that moves you towards perfectionism. How do you resist? the current that moves you towards thinking that you're less than, and so you have to do more and more and more and more. So it works both on the practical level, right? So what are the practical actionable strategies that you can use to make life a bit easier? But those practical strategies aren't sustainable if you don't also kind of get under the, the psychological, cultural, institutional things that, um, can, can invisibly, right, impact behavior and choices. So I started Well Academic because I really saw the need for the, the kind of psychological part. So how do you, how can you work and be well, right, in a stressful environment? 
because faculty life is stressful, although most people who aren't faculty don't think so. The research suggests it's pretty stressful and um, can be similarly, uh, not the same, but similarly stressful as K-12 K through 12 teaching. Oh, wow, okay. Well, thank you so much for taking time today for this interview. Sarah, I am so unbelievably impressed. <laughs> by you that you are doing this podcast that you're trying to make education um a better space for you and the students that will come after you if you do end up in psychology we will be better for it so thank you so much for all that you're doing and will do um in the discipline oh thank you <laughs> Hi guys, so I hope you really enjoyed um, this month's episode and that you learned a lot because I certainly did and I enjoyed it so much and I hope you guys did too and I'll see you guys um, at the next episode and that will be by myself and I hope you guys have a wonderful day and week and yeah, see you guys later, bye.